Take your Bibles, your copies of God's Word, and turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Last week, we heard about God's effectual call, God's grace, and calling us out of darkness and into light. And this week, we get to see what our response is. We get to see that we will come. And uh, Trey and Sylvia, if you'd be ready, I'd like to sing that song at the end. So have that on your mind as well. Let's read God's word, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for your good grace, your kindness. Father, that you have chosen for yourself a bride. You have chosen for yourself children. And Father, you have given us grace to believe. And Father, I pray even now that we would understand faith more more lovingly, Lord. That we would understand faith and what it accomplishes for us. And what you have accomplished for us. So Father, help us tonight to draw near to you, to draw near to the cross, to draw near to your Son. Father, I pray even now, Lord, that you would give faith to the one who does not believe you would redeem the one who does not know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, I'm going to preach a very simple sermon. A sermon that's highlighted by one word, and that word is come. As we heard last week, this word clearly means belief or faith. And if you look at our text in front of us, verse 35, Jesus uses the word faith and belief and come interchangeably. He says in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This gospel word come is not something Jesus says, wait, come later. It's not something he says, hey, come when you wish, come when you're comfortable. No, he says, come now, come today, come all you who are heavy laden, come see the king, come dwell in his courts. This word come is meant for you to hear now, and it's meant for you to do now. As believers, as those who trust in Christ, those who believe in Christ, we long for sinners to come. Friends, we, we want the gospel call of coming to Christ to go out among our neighbors, to go out among the rich and the poor, to go out among the conservative and the liberal, to go out among all ethnicities, among the foolish and the wise of this world, among the legalists and the lawlessness of this world. We desire for that call 
to impact our very lives and to actually go and do. But here's the problem. Some of us in this very room likely haven't come. You're running toward a cliff of ruin, a valley of destruction. Your sin has made you blind. You're hell-bent on having this world. Your heart loves power and riches, money. You're intoxicated by smooth words, eloquent words, theological words at times. You love the adulterous woman. You're fascinated. You're fascinated by the downfall of your neighbor. And you seek enjoyment and contentment and misery of others. Really, some of you in this room, sin has never been something you actually hate. Rather, it's something you feed. And friends, the law is written on your heart even now. And your very conscience bears witness against your actions. But God, but God, the sweetest words that we see in the, see in the Bible, but God being rich in his mercy bids you right now to come. If you desire to be saved, if you know that you need to be saved because of your sin, then you have heard even tonight that you must come only to Christ. This is not something the this is not something that we only do once, rather it's something that we're continually doing. And this is not something that Jesus uses only one time in his gospels, this word come. Rather, in Revelation 22, we see at the end of Scripture, Jesus is using these words to convey what we are to do. He says in Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride, which is the church, say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life come. The law says do. It commands work, commands obedience, but the gospel impels us simply to come to Jesus, to believe upon Christ. The law demands work, but the gospel draws us, draws us to our great law keeper. Let me give you an example. The life of a soldier is to follow his captain's orders. The prophet may not know the end, but he knows the one who's leading him to the end, to the goal. One of my favorite poems, and some of you who know poetry might laugh and uh, sort of think I'm rubbish, think that's just foolish, but I love the charge of the light brigade. Um, it's by Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. The history behind this poem is about miscommunication that happens between the British command post and the light brigade of about 600 soldiers who went into a no-win battle against the Russians. Tennyson writes, he says, Ford the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered, someone had miscommunicated. There's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die into the valley of death, rode the 600. Tennyson portrays a battle in which the soldiers followed their leader no matter the cost, even if that cost meant their very lives. Now, unlike the charge of the light brigade, 
there's no miscommunication from God. The Godhead is never out of alignment. God has instilled confidence in his soldiers to come and to follow, even through the death of his son. Our leader is Christ, and he does, in fact, now call us to come and to die. If you'll look at Luke 9, what Billy read earlier, if you'll go there, I want to just read a couple verses, but I want you to see this. Luke 9, verse 23. Give you a second. Luke, in his gospel, says, If anyone would come, if anyone would believe, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. At the root, at, at the ground level of faith is death. And it's death to our former nature. It's death to our flesh. A nature that only sought out pleasure and really only provided demise. When we come and follow Christ, we do in fact die to ourselves. If you wish to come to Christ now, then come to his death. Come so that you may have resurrection in him. Faith is not only about death, but faith also provides for us things. Faith in Christ provides for us a justification, a right standing before God. And our right standing right now is found in the blood of Christ. Faith also is meriting for us in Christ, in Christ, and helps us to walk out our salvation in fear and trembling. But as we think about faith this evening, I want to direct our attention to what may be some of our objections to coming to Christ. So I'm going to give you right now six objections in coming to Christ that the unbeliever or potentially even believers or those who think they're believers may have in coming back to Christ and use these objections. I would encourage you in your workplaces, in your employment, think about how people are often giving you these objections in coming to Christ. First objection, and these are going to be very familiar. It's not something lofty, I promise you. First objection, I'm too sinful. I'm too sinful. How could Christ accept me? I'm often uh, with, I shared this last week, but I'm often with a lady at sundown who's my waitress, and her excuse every time is, I'm too, I'm too sinful. I can't come. I'm I, I live a debaucherous lifestyle. If you only knew what I did, how could God forgive me? This is one of the more common objections. You aren't the first person, if you're thinking right now, to have this thought. The great prophet Isaiah said, woe to me. This is, the, this is one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. He says, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Martin Luther the great Protestant reformer, most of us know and have heard about him, he says uh, that he was often tormented by sin. He even said at one time, what can I do to win a gracious God? Oh, my sin, my sin, what shall I do with my sin? All I want is to be convinced in my heart that I have forgiveness of sins and peace with God, but it is the hardest thing. 
Do you have that type of conscience? This is, the, are you, is your sin ever before you? The reason why we think we are often too sinful is because the law of God has not only been written on tablets of stone, but they've been written in our hearts. We're sinners. We're great sinners. We see the immeasurable perfection of God in the law, and we know that we have transgressed him. We know that we have hated him. It's fair to ask, honestly, how could God accept me? How could he accept me, especially when I know my sin? But remember, remember that God made him who knew no sin to be sin. He made Christ to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. No matter how vile your heart may be, no matter how corrupt your thoughts are, there is no limit to Christ's purity and goodness, which means there is no sin of the elect in which his his death has not already paid for. Simply come, believe, trust trust in Christ who has paid your penalty. Luther, who was often tormented by his sins, also said these great words. He said, when the devil comes, and he will come, when the devil comes and throws your sins in your face, tell him, I admit it, I deserve death, and hell, what of it? For I know the one who suffered in my place and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus, the Son of God, and where he is, I shall stand also. No man, zero, no man has reached the point of being too sinful to come to Christ. The Spirit breathes on who it wishes. And when it breathes on you, when it breathes on you, when you are, receive his light, you understand his light, you don't come walking, you come running to his arms. When you understand his grace, when you know his grace and you've seen Christ for the first time, you don't come just walking about, you come running to him. No one is too sinful. Second objection people make in coming to Christ, or in this case, coming back to Christ, is I've backslidden, I've backslidden into gross sin. How could God still save me? I'm going to call this person Mr. Backslider or Mr. B for short. Mr. B says, I once knew and loved Christ, but this world is more appealing. It's become my closest companion. Even Mr. B knows the dangers he's in. He knows that friendship with the world makes him an enemy with God. However, sin has made him oblivious to how he is degrading the mercy of Christ, how he's wounding his conscience, and how he's given credence for the adversaries of the church to make a mockery of God. To regress back in sin, Mr. B has done, means that he may have never known the true grace of Christ. He may have never known or confessed Christ, but still, Mr. B has no excuse. And you may be Mr. B. You may be Mr. Backslider. If you are Mr. Backslider tonight, then I plead with you and remind you of the promises of Christ. Promises that can set free murderers like David, who comes back again and pleads with God to blot out his transgressions. Promises that cover the fornicator, Solomon. Promises that cover the denier, the apostle Peter. 
Sometimes we're wounded by the flood of temptation, but even the backslidden child of God is not overtaken. If you have truly come, if you have truly confessed sin, then you will come again. You will come again. You will keep coming. You will repent of sin and come back to Christ. Remember, there is no darkness that light cannot dispel. There is no cruelty that his gentleness cannot transform. And there is no pride that his humility cannot erase. There's no addiction. There's no addiction that his power cannot tame. And there's no lust. Hear this. There's no lust that his faithfulness cannot purify. There's no greed. We heard about money this morning. There's no greed that his generosity cannot quell. The death of Jesus has paid the penalty for the totality of our sin. If we only come to him, if we only believe in him, there's forgiveness, even for those who have fallen into gross sin. The third objection that you might have, or people you know might have, in coming to Christ is I'm too indifferent. This person says, I don't particularly care about religion, let alone Christ. This person's apathetic toward the things of God. And I dare say that this is probably where many people are in society. They're building up treasures for themselves on earth and have not thought long and hard about their souls. Are you this person? Have you thought about your soul? Do you just come week in and week out, not thinking about your eternity? This person has not considered how the law condemns them. They have not pondered the depths of God's word to see the love of Christ. They are too busy. They're busy gratifying their flesh. They're busy storing up wrath for the day of judgment to ever concern themselves with such lofty subjects as God or faith or salvation. Or Christ. Ultimately, they are self-absorbed and serve the creature rather than the creator. And the Bible actually tells us that it is impossible. It's impossible to be indifferent. Either you love God and the things of God or you hate him. There's no other options. You may claim to be indifferent, but that indifference challenges the very love of God. The Apostle Paul was once indifferent, so to speak, in coming to Christ. In Philippians 3, he speaks of his coming to Christ like this. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. This is Paul saying. He was indifferent. He hated God. And he says this, but, another good word, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You also might be sitting back and saying, I'm blameless. I'm blameless. But if you are indifferent towards Christ in this life, know that the judgment of God will not be indifferent towards you. Rather, the judgment of God will be on you in the life to come. 
The fourth objection. Fourth objection is I'm young. I'm young. I got plenty of time with God. I got plenty of time to repent. I got plenty of time to cast away these sins. Why do I need to come to Christ now? Why do I need it now? I'm not going to die anytime soon. I'm sure the rich young ruler left the presence of the Savior and he had similar thoughts. I can leave my greed behind later and return to Christ. Luke 18 even tells us that the rich young ruler was perfect in keeping God's law as a young boy. Yet Christ, Christ who knows the heart, knew the hidden sin of greed that this young man was having. He had. This is similar to many young people. Often you hear of young people clinging to their idols, and that's why the Apostle John says in his first letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. You think you'll be able to give it up later. You think you'll be able to give up that sin later. You think there will be more time to confess later. But what if, let's just imagine for a second. Let's, Let's put on our imaginary caps. Let's just imagine a story. What if this rich young ruler left the presence of Christ only to go around the corner and see a band of robbers who then beat him to a pulp and he died? You probably would think, That man would have confessed sooner, right? That man would have left his sin sooner. He would have left his sin when Jesus said, leave everything and come and follow me. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. James 4 says, come. Here's that word again. Come now. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life, young person? What is your life, young person? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're only here for a short time. Dear young person, dear child, you may be clinging to games, to your phones, or even your appearance. But one day, every single one of those things will be dust. And the only thing that will remain, the only thing that will remain is your soul. Come today to God. Come to Christ today. The fifth objection is I'm too old. I'm too old. Why now? Why not earlier? I've loved my sin for many years. I've been a drunk, an adulterer, a swindler. Why would God call me out of sin today? Well, because God can even use those close to death to display his glory. You may be nearing your last breath on this earth, yet God can pluck you out and give you life eternally. Whether one believes for 80 years as a child or on their last breath, God is faithful to redeem. He's faithful to never cast you out. Think about. This is why this story is here for us to constantly go back to. Think about the thief on the cross. He's breathing his last breath. And he says, take me in. Take me with you. I want to go to where you're going. 
Surely there's no sin in you. Surely you're the son of God. Take me where you're going. What does Jesus say to that poor sinner, that wretched sinner, that sinner that's close to death? His days are numbered. His minutes are numbered. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, but today you will be with me in paradise. Remember that old Abraham. Old man Abraham believed in God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And not only did God save and pluck Abraham out of his sin, but he made him the father of many nations. God uses, he uses what the world seems as complete foolishness to shame the wise. And what's more foolish? Think about this. What's more foolish than a bitter old drunk? What's more foolish than a bitter old drunk who's about to die? They can still come. They can still turn. They can still believe. You might have unbelieving parents or unbelieving grandparents. Don't give up proclaiming to them the gospel. There's a stereotype that the elderly are entrenched in their ways, that they're stuck in their ways. They're stuck in this, like, I, they, this is all they know. However, age often makes them relinquish what they once value most. What about driving? They can't drive much anymore. Things start fading away. They need more help. They need more help. And so they start thinking about eternity, what their sin has done. They're close to death, so they need to know what's going to happen with their soul. Our days are quickly fading. They're quickly fleeing from us. Death is knocking at the door. But those people can come. You don't just not share the gospel. You go to them, pleading with them to come, to come to Christ, to hope only in him so that they may see glory. The last objection is I'm already good. I'm already good. Tomorrow, trust me, like if, if each and every one of you did this, you found a spot within Montgomery or the Tri-County area where there are people out on the streets and you went up to them and you asked them, why should God let you into heaven? I guarantee you, 90% of those people would say, because I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm a nice guy. I've loved my wife. I've loved my kids. I've provided for them. I've done all these great things. They, they, they look at themselves. They list out all these great measurable things. You say, well, that's good. I can sort of relate to that. They're sort of like a politician, right? Here's everything I'm going to do for you and everything that I've done. They're like the guy in Matthew 7 who says, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty, many mighty works in your name? What does Jesus say to them? This is so important. What does Jesus say to them? He says, depart from me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. The unbeliever. The unbeliever says, look at me. Look at all I've done. Look at all I've accomplished. While the believer, the child of God says, look at Christ. Look at all he's done for me. The story of, I want to 
in thinking about the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son has always been one that fascinates me. At first, you're consumed by the son who's spoiled his inheritance and returns to his gracious father, this gracious father who immediately forgives him, loves him, wraps his arms around him, says, son, welcome home. You're consumed with thinking about that because you know who you are. You know that you're a great sinner and you know you need that loving father. You're consumed with this. There's a party waiting for you. But the story doesn't end there, right? It doesn't end there. We see the older son. You see the older son. You see that he was the good son. He plowed the fields, reined in the cattle, took care of the home. He worked and he labored for gifts, for glory from his father. You see, the older son wanted pride, wanted glory for himself, wanted pleasure for himself, wanted all of the father's inheritance that was left. He was just as wicked. He was just as wicked as the younger son, just as wicked as the brother, yet he knew not his wickedness. He knew not his sin. He did not understand that no one is good, not even one. And this is my fear. This is my fear that this could be you. This could be even the one who's been baptized, who's had faith, who has been raised in this church. This is my fear that you might be You might be trusting in your goodness, your righteousness. You could naturally be prone to looking at your works, but I plead with you, I plead with you, I plead with you to look at Christ. No great work has there ever been. No better work has there ever been than Christ on the cross. The perfect one dying for the imperfect. And it's fitting for us to close on the work of the Son. There's a beautiful old hymn called Beneath the Cross. And it sums up how we should think about Christ. It sums up how we need to think about our sin and our Savior. It says this in the second verse. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears to wonders I confess the wonders of thy redeeming love and my unworthiness. You and I will never be good enough. You won't be good enough. You won't obey enough. But we can trust in the one who is worthy. He's worthy. We can trust in the one who satisfies all our debts and redeems us from our very sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, God, that you have given us Christ yet again. Thank you, Lord, that you have fulfilled the law in our place through Christ's work. Father, I pray even now, Lord, that we would turn from sin and we would hate, we would hate our lawlessness. Father, we would even look at our own selves and not measure ourselves, but show ourselves to Christ. And let him save us. That we would come running to him and him alone. Father, help us now. Help us now to come only to a savior. Only to Christ. To believe only in him. Father, allow us to go out 
worshiping you, knowing you, loving you, thinking about your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.